And if you have customers and you see customers willing to adopt what you have to offer, stop everything you're doing and just uh, dedicate all your attention, all your energy to that project. That's a clip from this interview I do with Marcio Severa. He's offering advice to all of you who want to start a business. So check out that part of the interview. It takes place right at the end of this interview. Hello and welcome to my podcast. I am Mark Jorgensen and uh, I got a big announcement actually from now on. This podcast will be called The Markcast. Um, after some uh, crowdsourcing and speaking with some people, I, we came up with a name that made a little more sense, was a little more catchy. It was called The Mark Podcast. Now we're calling it The, the Markcast. And so from now on, that's what it'll be called. And so um, I'll have further updates with uh, Twitter and all that kind of stuff going forward. This episode is really interesting. I interview... Marcio Silveira, who owns a company that he started called Pavlov Financial Planning. It's located in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, he's a native of Rio de Janeiro. And during the podcast, we talk about what it was like to grow up in Rio, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, in my opinion. A series of you know, good moves during his life kind of landed him you know, progressively in the world of finance, kind of moving up. And uh, he worked at a hedge fund in Rio. He was the Russia analyst um, in the early 2000s for a hedge fund in Rio de Janeiro. That's when Russia was the hottest market out there. And he was very successful in that role. Um, he came to the US, he worked at a startup venture in the distilled spirits area. And he was very successful with that as well. Since then he became a uh, financial planner and a chartered financial analyst, which is a very difficult test. Um, he became a CFA, then he got into advising uh, individual clients. So he's had a diverse array of, of experience in his life and uh, it's a fascinating discussion we have. If you're mostly just interested in hearing about financial planning aspects or starting a business, go ahead and skip to the end. That's in the last third of the episode. But you're going to miss some very interesting parts because we talk about growing up and just the interesting stories he has. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Uh, Marcio, really happy to be with you today. How are you feeling? I feel great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Marcio, we're just going to kind of go through and uh, you know, ask you a little bit of how you got into it. You've had a very interesting life. I mean, you, you grew up in Brazil, then you, you've lived in the U.S., and you've had a lot of international experience, but you know, you've, you've had a lot of very professional experience, about 20 years altogether of financial um, experience. So um, hopefully we can kind of distill this down to a very interesting you know, episode. Um, so tell me about what was it like growing up? You, you grew up in Rio? Uh, yeah, yeah. it was awesome. Uh, I had a tr very nice life as a kid and as a young man in Rio. I grew up in a place of uh, the city, very close to the Botanical Gardens. Uh, it was very close to Leblanc Beach and Ipanema Beach. So I would go to the beach often with my parents. My place was also very close to Flamengo, which is a big a sports club, very big for uh, soccer, but uh, they had all sorts of different sports. So I was a swimmer and I played tennis and did uh, judo and volleyball, different activities there. So it was, it was fun, it was fantastic. I had the beach, we had the nice uh, uh, gardens next to us, sports. I cannot complain. 
Yeah, I've been to those gardens before. It's it's beautiful that whole area. Um, you grew up in a, a family. Did you have siblings growing up? Or? Two brothers. Yeah, younger than me, but close okay. in age. So you're, so you're the oldest. I am uh, the oldest. Of three. Yeah. Uh, what did your parents do? My mother is a Portuguese teacher. Okay. Recently retired, and my father, he was in investments. He was a financial analyst working for a broker. I remember when he was growing, when I was growing up, he was there uh, coming back from from work with his suit Mm -hmm. and talking about developments in the stock market and financial markets in general. It was in the early 80s. There was a lot going on in Brazil. The economy was uh, bumpy back then. So it was, it was an interesting time. People could lose a lot of money very quickly or make a lot of money very quickly. Talking about the economy, investments, stock market, and things like that, it was a dinner table conversation um, at home. So I got uh, interested in these topics from a very early age. So is that kind of what you, you felt like, hey, I'm going to kind of do what my dad did early on? Or was it your, because you were playing all these sports and stuff, or were you like most kids, like, oh, I'm going to be a professional athlete? Or did you feel like, you know, I want to do this kind of business stuff. This is interesting. You know? it, was, it was very interesting, but it was not something that I had clear that I would like to pursue. It's a bit interesting that the, for a while I was considering a career with the Brazilian Navy. I, I was in the Naval Academy there really? for a couple of years. Huh? And uh, then I felt like the military career was not really a, a long-term career for me. And um, I went back to um, the civilian life, and I was considering going to law school, but, uh, which in Brazil is undergraduate, so I was uh, more into pursuing a, a legal career. But then I realized that I really liked the subjects of um, economics. I, I really liked the idea of... Uh, understanding how societies work and how um, things get organized. Economists, they kind of have a special status among uh, social scientists. So this was uh, something that um, I would I felt interested in pursuing. I also didn't want to give up uh, dealing with, with math because I, I had some abilities to... So you were good at math. From, yeah. from pretty much a young age, yeah. you were the kid you know, and, you know, figuring out stuff. One of the first people in your class and... That kind of thing? I was a good student, yeah. yeah. But I wasn't m- putting much effort for the most part, but uh, I, I was able to get some, some good outcomes in terms of uh, testing and uh, things like that. But uh, in pursuing a career in law, I would sort of have to stop uh, dealing with, with numbers and equations and math and things like that because it's not really part of the profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, right. uh, in economics, they could combine um, study of the society, uh, history, and uh, this uh, more systemic, qualitative uh, ways of things, things, but at the same time dealing with modeling, numbers and equations and statistics, and a more formalized uh, approach to um, dealing with, uh, with knowledge. Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed I've gotten to know you is um, you're fairly multifaceted. I mean, you definitely have a, a very deep knowledge of finance and financial markets and that's but you also have you know a pretty a pretty broad range of you know knowledge that you like to draw upon as well and so that's I think it's very interesting it I guess my question is I mean did your parents your dad was in the finance financial markets and the stock markets in Rio but at that point the financial market in Brazil had already shifted over into Sao Paulo no at that it, point, it was, was shifting 
Oh, it was shifting. Okay. It was right at the time when it was shifting. So okay. it's still, Rio had a bigger stock market up until the early, early 80s. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then during that time, uh, more and more, uh, Rio became less active and most of the liquidity was migrating to Sao Paulo. The, the stock exchange in Rio became less relevant and now it, it pretty much doesn't exist anymore. But there were two stock exchanges in Brazil, one in Rio, one in Sao Paulo. The one in Rio was bigger. During the 70s, the, the one in Rio was more important. But then it started to become more based in Sao Paulo. But Rio had a big tradition in terms of uh, having uh, the headquarters of uh, important investment banks. Even now, the uh, asset management industry in Brazil is very heavily located in, in Rio. And Sao Paulo, you do have the banks and the brokers, uh, you know, with all proportions being taken into account. It's, it's a bit like uh, what you have in Boston, like the investors in Boston, the brokers in New York. So mm -hmm. right now you see something like the investors in Rio and the brokers in Sao Paulo. Yeah, I think, and plus with like the kind of proliferation of hedge funds, um, I read this article a few years ago in Istoe Janeiro, it's a Brazilian magazine, a business magazine, but they were they were citing a few examples of like hedge fund managers or people that just, you know, had amassed a lot of wealth, like asset managers that had moved from Sao Paulo to Rio is kind of, you know, there was a bit of a shift. Yeah, Leblanc, Leblanc Beach in Rio is the, the hedge fund capital of Brazil. Okay. So it's, it's where they are right now. <laughs> so you uh, so you got into that. So you got into the financial markets. Then you went to business school um, somewhere in yeah, there. And... Uh, I, I started studying economics, and then I had this interest and this curiosity to see the world. I didn't have that much money. My dad wasn't able to become very wealthy in the profession, but uh, so he missed out on the big riches. Of, yeah, he uh, missed out on the big riches, but. He was able to give me some decent education, but uh, he was—he didn't have the deep pockets to send me to see the world and stuff. Uh -huh. So in one of my, my vacations, I decided to come to the U.S. to improve my English, also have some fun. I spent two months in California. What yeah. part of California? In Southern California, in Santa Monica. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Santa Monica's great. Yeah, yeah. I've been there. I used, to, I used to live out there for a while, yeah. Yeah, awesome. so <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. Good. Uh, I really enjoy myself. I may have enjoyed myself too much because um, when the program was over, I had a, a big uh, amount of debt, and it was a, uh, it was credit card debt in in Brazil, in Brazilian hands, and this credit card debt were charging me ten percent per month, uh, and I owed a couple of thousand dollars in debt. So I, I came back and I basically I had to find a job, right? And I got a job at sort of a at an investment bank in Brazil. And I was using my English skills because I was helping clear the transactions of, uh, of the bank with the Wall Street uh, banks and Wall Street brokers. So I was on the phone with the back offices in New York to clear the transactions you're doing. A lot of transactions in Brazilian bonds and some also time deposits and things like that. How did you get that job? Did you, just, did you just apply for it? Did you know somebody there? Or? Uh, there was a friend from college okay. who told me that uh, they, were need, they were in search of a of a candidate, uh -huh. so I came in with sort of the right credentials for the job. So I got the job at this. And you spoke English a little better than most other people. I, I spoke English at a similar level of other people because okay. when I started college, my English was below average. Okay. So that program in California helped me to bring my level to average of the other college students in the same school I was going. Yeah. But it gave me enough of uh, an English ability to take on that job. 
So I was using the English I learned here uh, in, in that job in Brazil. And that job paid me enough to just get by and pay back my bills. So I started the job in March, and then by November I was done with my bills, my credit card bills. But I wasn't really spending anything, but uh, they used to give me this um, ticket to uh, eat lunch, like this lunch ticket. Oh, sure. It's very yeah, popular yeah. in Brazil. They do. They pay for your your. Your company pays for your. The lunch. company com pays for your lunch. But I used to sell it in the black market for somebody who was with a discount, a twenty percent discount. Really. And I was having my lunch with my grand grandmother, because I, I moved to you know stay close to her because. Uh, she lived right between my college and my job. So I would go to college in the morning, go to my grandma's, grab lunch with her, put a suit, go to this job, which is sort of an internship, but it was a well-paid internship. Right. And I, w I was able to sell my lunch ticket with a discount, 20% discount. So how, much, I, how much was it worth, like five bucks or something? Or I mean, with the equivalent, I guess this is going back a little while with inflation. Yes, but back then, okay, we could nowadays maybe fifteen to twenty bucks, something like that okay. per day. Wow. Yeah. So I so I sold those plus the pay, so it was enough for me to pay back my debts. Wow. And I was working for this firm. I learned a lot uh, there. It was it was a good firm. It was Banco da Bahia, right now it's Banco BBM. Still a good bank, good place to work. Cool. And uh, I learned I learned quite a lot about. How banks work and how, and that's when I made the transition from uh, the interest in economics, that academic interest in economics, into working in, in financial markets and dealing with finance. So, and I really enjoy finance. That was the first time I became aware of modern portfolio theory. I kind of like the whole concept of it. I understand how to price a bond and things like that. And it was was when I really got familiarization with with finance, it was through that, that internship. And I was able to pay my bills, so I'm happy. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a cool place to work. Uh, worked very hard for like a student. I definitely was not paid everything was giving back to the company, but yeah. it, it, it did work out for all parties, so I can't complain. How old were you then, about, about 20? 20. 20, okay, about 20 years old. I was old. 20, yeah. I turned 20 right out of said I, I started that uh, job. And you were, you'd already finished your undergraduate? Or no, was no, it, was, it was I was concurrent. going to school. Oh, concurrent. you were still going? Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. It's concurrent. Nice. So you, you did that and you kind of decided, it sounds like, hey, I'm going to. I did, I finance. like finance. I like work, finance. Work and I saw finance. the people making good money and stuff. Yeah. So I, I, I really like finance. So you kind of were drawn to it, I guess, from the, the intellectual kind of internal interest, as well as you kind of thought, oh, well, I can make a bunch of money doing this too, or, or at least have that possibility. So it was kind of a mixture, whereas... Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it, of people, course, the money played a role because uh, I was just thinking, okay, I could become like an academic economist and work my way through and oh. eventually uh, make something in the end, but most likely become a college professor, you know, and complain that I'm underpaid. <laughs> and I'm also so, so so smart, so capable, and, and underpaid. Or I could try my luck in the markets and you know uh, private sector. Yeah. So I, I, the money did play a role, and the ambition, the financial ambition, did play a role. So so I take it you never quite. I mean, because you came, you started from the more academic or intellectual perspective. You never quite saw yourself as more like the trader, kind of like guy doing those really fast kind of trades. But or or, or did you? I guess what was? Oh no, I did. Oh, you I did. did. Oh, you did. Yeah, oh, I did okay. because did. then I felt it was fun to do. I, I, okay. I kind of got to understand how that worked, and but uh, yeah, and I was pursuing that more than than pursuing the 
the academic career as an economist. So you were in Santa Monica? That would have been like the, sometime in the 90s? or 1996, January and February of 1996. So it must have been a pretty fun time in California. It was. There. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. I got a fake ID, was going to all the clubs in Santa Monica and Hollywood. <laughs> uh, I also went to Hawaii, had a lot of fun there. I went surfing in Hawaii. I went to Lake Tahoe, I went skiing in Lake Tahoe. Yeah. Came back with some bills to pay but yeah <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I think that, but like you know sometimes memories are worth it you know like an experience you know there were so many Brazilians there we're having a lot of fun I try not to hang out only with Brazilians but I had a good friend from Switzerland was part of the group there uh, we had uh, people from Turkey from Japan so didn't get to interact much with Americans because you know it's an English um, School, yeah, at English at a second language school, but it was it was it was really cool. I I I enjoyed it. I had great too. It was excellent. I loved it. Would you say Santa Monica and Rio are fairly similar cities in, in just how they feel or something like that? I mean, I way, mean personally, I, they kind of feel kind of similar to me in a way, but a, a little bit. It, it could you could tell there's some similarities, like Santa Monica surfers, people yeah. working out, you know, going rollerblading in the you know, backpack by the beach. So, you know, that's why I chose, actually, because I found it cool. And I want to yeah. be in a sort of a cool place. That, in a way, it's similar to my culture. Maybe it was a narrow-minded view because I didn't want to mm -hmm. see it sort of a different culture. I want to be in a similar type of beach culture. But So you decided you wanted to get into the financial world. And so eventually you kind of, you continued the path. And then you, what happened after you graduated? You, you started working? I immediately, no, I immediately went to, to, I took an MBA program. Okay, so you did your MBA. In Brazil which was a very special type of MBA because uh, it was an MBA, but one of the requirements was to complete a, a master's dissertation. Mm -hmm. It was also connected with the Federal University of Rio. That meant there was no pay. So I got my MBA without paying anything for it. Wow. Actually, I was eligible for a fellowship program with a Brazilian graduate uh, uh, research agency. And I was getting you know, about 500 bucks per month to support my research work. Nice. How did so it was very academic really. <laughs> but it's not. All everybody graduating from that school was mostly working for the private sector. Oh, okay. And okay. in, uh, in an MBA type of scenario, companies, big uh, corporate employers were coming to to the school to recruit. Also big um, consulting firms. You had McKinsey, Booz Allen, mm -hmm. and um, some other local consulting groups. Most so, people would go pursue a career in the private sector just like normal MBA students. Where did you go after that? So, What was your yeah, path? Um, I didn't go to the typical path of students in my school because mm -hmm. I, I went to work for a, a local hedge fund. Oh, okay, okay. And that local hedge fund would, would not come to town to recruit. The way to get there is if you knew people. So you knew somebody. I knew of a good friend of mine who was working for them. He was. He also worked for that bank that was a, 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 an intern before. Oh, the same bank where same you bank, started. Same bank. Yes. Okay, yeah. so, it was, okay. He was a good, good friend of mine. He grew up in a very, you know, close to me. Went to the same high school, and uh, they were looking for somebody who um, would uh, cover the Russian market. Oh, and you have a they, Russian. My mom ha comes from a Russian family. That's oh. So I have the Russian connection. So they are looking for a person that could. Uh, uh, be a meaningful player in that Russian making Russian investments, mm -hmm. and that's what I I did. 
I joined the firm and I was covering Russia at the time Russia was recovering from the crisis. So 19, big, 1998. From the, 1990, from the 1998 crisis, the it was rubble. the upswing. So the rubble collapsed in 1998. Right. So after that, uh, there was a, a little bit of a period of when the dust settled, and then there was an upswing. Russia really recovered. I mean, the credit rating really got improved, so bond yields went down. All assets in Russia, they appreciated a lot. Mm-hmm. There was an understanding that Putin had created some sort of pact with the oligarchs to uh, work out the system. And it was a period of a lot of hope, mm-hmm. 2002, beginning of 2003. So I was there right at that moment of the upswing of, okay. of Russia. I remember going to a conference in Moscow and you know the guy it was a guy from The Economist magazine saying, oh, yeah, right now Russia, and it was 2002 at the time that dot-com bubble and all this mess right, yeah, here in the yeah, U.S. Yeah. So it's like, like Russia is this now, now the, the hottest place in world capitalism mm-hmm. <laughs> in 2002. Now, of course, in 2003, we saw that a lot of this was kind of hot, uh, hot air. Hot air. Yeah. They, when they, they arrested uh, Mr. Khodorkovsky and they, they went after Yukus and all that stuff. But by that time, uh, I, was, I was no longer doing Russia. I was no longer with that firm. But uh, it was a very cool experience, and I was in the right place at the right time. I could make a little bit of money back then. Yeah, hedge funds, um, I mean, hedge funds have been around for a while, but, I mean, they were really kind of heating up um, around that time, I think. Yeah. I mean, now it's kind of a word we all know. But back then, I mean, hedge funds were a pretty new kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, and my firm was one of the most... Uh, relevant players in that universe in Brazil. Yeah. So it was one of the leading hedge funds. What was the name of the hedge fund? JGP. JGP. And what I've always kind of been curious, like as working for a hedge fund as being like the Russia guy, I mean, what is your job to do most? I mean, obviously do you do a lot of research? Yeah. Mostly and just kind of write up reports? Broker research. Okay. So you're reading broker research. Analyze their models and and come up with investment ideas and investment thesis, test them out, make the trades, see if it works. Go talk to some companies, try to see if there's any kind of an inside story. Very difficult to trade if you're not there, especially in a market like Russia. Yeah. <laughs> but if market is growing, some market is going up and you know, you have that tailwind, you make the bets. In the end, there's a little bit of a component of gambling here. You come up with this, some investment thesis and and try it out. There's a big uh, component of luck in the whole process of uh, short-term active investing. Whatever money that was made there, a uh, big reason for it was pure luck. Really? Uh, and of course, there may be some some skill associated with trying to select uh, the best options and and having the the nerve to pull the trigger and make the 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 trades and hold on to them, but I don't know. So, 80, so I eighty-five percent luck, fifteen percent skill at the most. So, so I take it you did pretty well there. I mean, was there kind of like around the office, kind of like a little bit of ego, kind of like flaunting? Oh, when you when you when you junior when you junior there, of course you make you you make a lot of money for the firm and you only get the crumbs and stuff, and, and that's oh, yeah. what sort of what's expected. But for me, it was was more than enough <laughs> back then. <laughs> But uh, it was not uh, it was not something that uh, made me independently wealthy at the age of twenty five. But 
Sure, but but it was a good it was a good first job. So um, so that was your kind of your first job experience, and it sounded like it went real job experience, pr- yeah, pretty well overall. Um, wh- so where did you go? Walk us through. You later moved to America, and oh yeah, then a lot of Miami. things happened. My job, my my boss guy from the U.S. He moved back here, uh-huh. and I got a new boss there. That, that uh, we we didn't get along very well, and it was it was a bit difficult to to keep. Uh, uh, working there and there was an opportunity that came up in Miami to uh-huh. do something different to be more in the advisory role working with international clients and maybe some domestic clients explaining investments to them selling investments and solutions so um, so you took that huh? I took that it was easy for me to come to the US because I was married to a US citizen oh I see yeah so I came to the US with a green card Mm-hmm. With a little bit of money in my pocket and already able to speak English. By then, my English was was much better. You know, mm-hmm. I had I kept studying and stuff. I I felt very comfortable in Miami. Miami, in a way, similar to Rio in many respects. Yeah. Uh, so and there's a lot of Brazilians in Miami. Yeah, too, some right? Brazilians. Yeah, there are. There are. I didn't really feel that, that there was much of a of a big difference. Like I noticed as far as culture shock, you felt like Miami. As far as culture shock, but you know, de- definitely being in the U.S. is you're in a, in a whole different kind of an environment that everything is much bigger, right? <laughs> you know, and you don't get to know everybody, and you you are in a in a sort of a different situation. It kind of kind of makes you feel more humble because in Brazil, I would say I was definitely part of a of a of a thin slice of a kind of a more educated, more uh, connected elite. Come to the United States. I'm more like a part of a a much larger group, and you know, it's, it's a whole whole different uh, situation. Yeah. No, nobody knew my background. You know the schools I went to. You know I didn't have that network that I had in Rio. So I kind of gave gave the, all that up to to the experience of the adventure and yeah. and try it out things here. Well, because you were saying, I mean, it sounds like you've had that pattern of. You know, kind of your connections that you make, whether it's at high school, whether at your job, you kind of make connections and those kind of help you out down the line pretty consistently. I mean, have you been able to keep on doing that since you came to the U.S.? I mean, I mean, in spite of, as you say, you're kind of, I mean, it's much bigger here. And I would say so, yes, yes, because, yeah, I met people here and through people I meet, one thing leads to another. Right. And and, then... Connecting with people, I think it's key, but it, it all happened in a very sort of organic way. It doesn't surprise me at all that Facebook, their, their biggest country, is Brazil. Because kind of as you say, I mean, people have this tendency, I, I don't know, if, it's, if there's one thing I think that's uniquely Brazilian in a way that, that I notice at least, is being able to make social connections in a kind of spontaneous and natural way. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that really, kind of as you say, there's kind of like this ability in Brazil, I think at least a lot of Brazilians that I've met, you know, I lived in Brazil for a couple of years, um, to kind of make social connections um, that make a difference over time, um, even if it's a small connection, but to kind of like, you know, create this sense of, you know, longer connection. And, uh, you know, Facebook, their number one country is Brazil, which doesn't surprise me at all. And I, I mean, I don't know, is that something you think that's uniquely Brazilian or is that just... It is something that uh, definitely it's part of uh, how things work there. A lot of times what we say in Brazil that it's not what you know, but who you know. Sure. It becomes very relevant to ha- to build that social capital. In many ways that can be a bit unfair because if you didn't have the right social connections, you become very limited. It can also be something that, that may not be super helpful for the economy because 
you don't get people that are really able to do the best jobs um, but uh, because you have that social connection and then you choose them over the ones who maybe are more qualified but you just want to have more comfort around some folks than mm-hmm. with other folks. I, I understand there are there could be some potential benefits and potential drawbacks, but uh, overall, I would say, yes, the social connections play a big role there. And it's part of a sort of a being Brazilian and growing up in that environment that uh, it's sort of part of me, comes in very naturally. And I have made some connections here in the U.S. in a similar way, but here's more, it's more overt, and it's clear that, okay, I, I want to be connect with that person because uh, there may be some business opportunity, because uh, there could be a client relationship down the road, because there can be some way to to leverage that. In Brazil, it, it definitely works in a bit of a different way. It feels like, oh, this person is fun, it's, it's, it's cool to be around with, and by the way, oh, there's a job somewhere, so like, you know, maybe you should send your resume. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a reverse almost, you know. It's like first you're interested in the person, then you're interested in the, what they can do for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So it's a bit, it's a bit different. Um, and um, Especially here in D.C. In D.C., it's totally like, you know, if, if you can help someone in their career, I mean, they want to get to know you right away. But yeah, here it's very deliberate. Yeah, so they, they right. make it, it, uh, it, it becomes very clear that what you want to accomplish by having that relationship in Brazil, the you don't know exactly what what's going to be accomplished, but you know, relationships matter a lot. They are, they do. Uh, well, they matter here too. But I kind of uh, it's I do have that curiosity and that uh, desire to be in a in a in an interesting, stimulating place. Uh, always very interested in other cultures, geography, and stuff like that. But when I was a kid growing up in Rio, everything was fine there, but I had never left the city or, or the surrounding areas. So the first time I left Rio was 18 when I went to Sao Paulo. Really? Wow. <laughs> so Did um, you hate it? <laughs> no, 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 I like Sao Paulo. It was different. It was kind of yeah. cool. It was, a, it was, it was it's an, it, I went there to get my driver's license. It was a crazy story, but you know, that's where you... You couldn't to, get your driver's license in Rio? It took forever. <laughs> oh, so you just want, it was easier to get in line? It was easy, to take yeah, the it was easy to go in Sao Paulo to go and, and get the test and get it done in Sao Paulo than in Rio. Rio would take like over six months and tons of, uh, of delays and corruption and stuff. Now it's so much better, but you know, I went to Sao Paulo because oh, many kids in Rio are getting their driver's license in Sao Paulo. Did you learn to drive at home? Like you, you already knew how to drive, right? Yeah, uh, my dad helped, and I also took classes from a driving school. Oh wow! Uh, but then I went to get the license. I went to São Paulo. I took the yeah. test in São Paulo. It was possible to do it back then. So uh, yeah. it was first time I went to São Paulo. I was eighteen, and you only can get a driver's license there when you're eighteen. But then I moved to the states, and I had this job in a bank in Miami. But you know, it was okay. I wasn't super happy with the job. It was kind of a uh, a bit of uh, I was a bit frustrated with the whole idea of uh, pitching products. There was they were not really the best things for clients, but uh, we still financial financial products. Financial products. Yeah, the financial products. Financial products. And uh, and then I came across some folks who were raising money for a project in the consumer goods area. 
the distilled spirits industry. Cachaça. Basically la- launching cachaça, cachaça in the United States. Yeah, that, cachaça. That was that, a project. It's like a, a whiskey that's made from sugarcane. W- sugar cane, right? Yes. Very popular. It's similar to rum. It used to be like Brazilian rum. Now they call it cachaça. It's made from sugarcane. Right. Very popular in Brazil. I mean, it's cheap. It's kind of well. It's it depends. Yeah. Depends. There's all sorts of prices, yeah, 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 and yeah. we could have a whole talk here. About yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the company needed money to launch the brand in the U.S., and they reached out to me asking if I had some money or connections to help them with with that project. And the name of the brand was Leblon. Leblon is the beach where I grew up in Rio, you know, in the area where I grew up in Rio. And I really liked the concept of the brand. I really fell in love with it and I invested some of my money. I got some people also to invest and I helped um, organize the fundraising process and and fund the company to, to launch the brand in the United States and abroad. And I established some new connections through this process. Um, and I established also uh, this idea that you can create something out of basically nothing and making things happen. So this was when the whole idea of being more entrepreneurial hit me. Mm. And we raised a lot of money, we were a startup, and then we were able to become like a growing brand, attracted attention of bigger players in the industry. The, there was a big player that became interested in the brand and they became a partner, they became a a meaningful investor and they kept increasing their stake. I believe they're very close to to making a final purchase, uh, you know, know, around this time right now. Oh, right right now. Right now, to make the final purchase. Can you say the name of the the famous Brazilian beverage maker, or can we not say that here? They're not Brazilian. They're international. Oh. I'm not going to name names, but it's it's the the third largest (laughs) spirits group in the world, and uh, they have uh, meaningful operations out of Miami, Florida. Sure. Okay. Okay. We can leave it there. We can leave it there. Okay. Okay. So, So they got interested, and they basically bought out... Your, yeah, your yeah, share? yeah, they okay. did, they did. Yeah. So with, with that, uh, I had the ability to get something going, something new going, and I really liked the idea of uh, creating a new concept and helping people with sharing my knowledge and helping people make better decisions in a very authentic, transparent way. I created my own company I call Pavlo Financial Planning. It's after the last name of my mother. In Brazil, I'm Marcio Pavlov da Silveira. Mm-hmm. And that's how I named the firm. I also want to play the whole thing of uh, the Russian scientist, psychologist, Ivan Petrovich Pavlov. Pavlov, yeah. And, Pavlov dog experiment. And Yes, yeah. and the psychology of uh, conditioning and deal with aspects connected to behavioral finance and train your behavior to make better financial decisions. I use a lot of concepts of behavioral finance in the way I engage with clients. And it's a completely independent firm. We're based in Arlington, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And we provide straightforward advice to everyone, mostly to young professionals, because these are the folks who value what we do. Uh, We do not manage assets directly. Mm -hmm. We provide consultative services. The major way for us to be compensated is via a monthly retainer. So 
I can serve people that are interested in being served regardless of whether they are rich or they are not so rich as long as they are, have the ability to pay uh, my fees. I also provide pro bono work that is uh, for free to uh, charity organizations once a month. I deal with pro bono works for people who really cannot afford. But for uh, young professionals or for people who have had a situation where they have the, the income and the ability to contract the service, but they do not have assets to uh, deploy so I could bill on the assets, I can help these people. So you can be like a, almost like a pre-retiree that you're falling behind and you are not able to uh, accumulate that much money, or you could be starting out after law school. Regardless of your circumstances, if you're in a situation of a above average income in order to feel the value of financial planning, mm-hmm and uh, sort of a, a low, relatively low level of assets, we are operating in that niche. So, and it has been attracting a good amount of attention in uh, some media coverage and uh, quiet client requests and you know, client engagement. And we're very happy, very excited with being a part of uh, this new movement in the industry towards moving from the sales of products and then management of uh, assets to objective, straightforward consultations that help people guide and make better decisions. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's the project that I'm involved with and I'm very excited to be part of of this. And this is purely, this is something that I am the founder and and the starter of. So it migrated from uh, my career in in a position that I was more in uh, playing in bigger teams and into a larger structures to a startup that I help to put together and launch. And I would consider the whole project with LeBlanc a, a successful startup deal to something that I have started myself. Right, right. And currently I have a junior partner and we're looking to expand, getting interns and, and new uh, junior analysts as the business grows. So this is uh, sort of uh, some of the evolution in my career into becoming more entrepreneur and taking more risk. So let's see how where, uh, yeah. where, where it goes. I well, actually, I sent a client to actually like about about a year ago or something like that. I mean, he's been very happy um, with the services you provided. Um, I, I guess just kind of a, a general t- a question on this, like w- with what you do, what are some common mistakes that people make financially? that you, you know, wish they didn't make or that you teach people not to make? I think what are some of the common missteps that I guess just someone listening to this could kind of take away and say, you know, how, how, how do I rethink this, my financial life, so I can make a better choice? Or what, what, what is something you... Something that I see very often is uh, people having expensive debts sure. that are not being addressed. I see situations where people have some good amounts of, uh, of cash set aside that may be even a little bit excessive and at the same time they have very expensive credit card debts at the same time. I see this happening over and over. So um, this is a big mistake because how much a credit card uh, charges you in terms of interest and how much you can earn from a savings account. It's like 12 or 18 percent usually? Yeah, you can, yeah sometimes even 20 percent per year and what you make in a savings account less than one percent. There should be a minimum amount that should be parked aside in a savings account, but uh, dealing with the credit card debt and at least having a, a concrete plan to deal with the credit card debt is something that is top priority. 
Another thing that I see all the time is people leaving money on the table when they are eligible for employer-sponsored plans, and the employer offers a match, and they don't take advantage of the match the employer offers. Oh, like, like a 401k? And yes. A, yeah, yeah. Like a, a right. 401k plan that offers a match. Right. And the employee is not contributing, is not taking advantage of at least a match. Yeah. I, I mean, that's you could have an increase in your salary right away simply by, by contributing enough so the employer would match whatever uh, you're contributing. Um, so this is a, a, something that is a, is a mistake that a lot of people make and could be easily addressed if you organize yourself a little bit better and, and contribute at least what uh, you'll get full employer, the full employer match. On top of that, you could be saving more in terms of uh, setting more money aside into the sponsor plan, taking advantage of uh, Roth IRAs right. that you can save now, uh, pay whatever tax you need to pay on your income right now, but then you can grow the money tax-free when you retire and let Compound works for you. Another problem that I see often is people buying investments. They are not the best investments because they are loaded with excessive fees, mm -hmm. products that don't deliver better returns, and they are charged with very, very high fees. And these, these fees, they go to pay, compensate the brokers who sold the investments, but uh, they do little to help investors accumulate wealth. What you do is to just review how much you, you need to, to set aside, and the amount you set aside for your financial independent should be in vehicles they are not too expensive. So you, you need to get to pay for uh, something that delivers value. And these embedded fees, they frankly don't deliver that much value. And uh, this hurts investors, this hurts the public. And you see the, the, the Obama administration right now uh, taking measures to uh, address the problem. Mm -hmm. So let's see where, where we land with that. But uh, there are some concrete measures that uh, the, the White House is, is doing to help mitigate some of the the excesses that we can see in the financial industry mm -hmm. and the fact that uh, you have interests that are not aligned between who are providing the products and the public who is consuming, uh, consuming using products. these investment products. Yeah, I think it's just it's something that's so relevant and um, people often don't think about finance. You know, I think the majority of people probably don't think about something every day or they don't like to really you know, plan 20, 30 years ahead. Um, I mean, do you think a lot of people, is, is it realistic to retire um, at 60 or 65? I mean, that debate kind of goes on all the time. And, you know, the, for the generation I'm in, you know, there, there's some serious doubt as to whether they'll be able to plan. But I think it's completely possible if you just take some precautionary measures and, you know, some of these things you're talking about, I think, are definitely... My, my honest opinion on this is that most people would not be able to really retire uh, at their ideal age right. because they will not be taking the, these measures and most people will not really be reaching out to engage with a, with a certified financial planner. Right. What they will try to do is to go on their own and it becomes almost an impossible problem to solve. Now if you do engage a certified financial planner and you establish a relationship and you follow the course, it's a different story. But 
I don't see this happening as for the majority of the population. It's just, uh, it's just not really there that desire to take control. I like to say that uh, if large corporations, they were managing pension plans with all the resources and the best professionals and actuaries and financial analysts and economists and everyone helping manage these plans, they're getting out of it because it was too hard for them to manage, mm -hmm. let alone individual folks, sometimes with no knowledge about investments and with a psychological makeup that is not very conducive to long-term savings. And that uh, you have some embedded intuitions that can trap you into buying things when they're expensive and selling things when they're cheap and achieving below average returns consistently. I find it very, very difficult for the majority of people to achieve the reality of retiring at the ideal age. They'll have to keep working or they'll have to settle for a, a level of income that is much less than what they're used to. So they'll have to make some tough choices down the road. And that's the world we live in right now. And there's very little that can be done. Maybe because of uh, this fact that uh, we have, and this is my personal opinion here. Uh, sure, that's what we're all about here. Because, because of this fact, it will be so hard for people to retire. When the millennial generation reach, reach, reaches retirement age, or when like this Gen X is, when people who are not more eligible for these employer pension plans anymore, and pensions become something extremely rare, right. and everyone is sort of relying on just Social Security or whatever's left in your 401k plans, when this becomes really the, the majority of the population and the population is aging and this becomes a major group, it's very possible that they'll play within the political system to, instead of uh, making Social Security less oh. generous because the Social Security will not work out, but you know, just find ways to tax the younger generations to make the Social Security more generous, to make them their later years more uh, bearable. So the political system can play out to maybe create a more generous social security. But it's very hard to bank on that and make a retirement on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not suggesting that to any of our listeners. No, no I think a lot because a lot of the discussion does focus on you know, how do we make it less generous or to kind of cut back social security. And that's like it hasn't happened. It's probably not going to happen. But I mean, you're right. I, I think there is a lot of a good point to what you're saying there is eventually the pressure might be to really make it more generous. And I that, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Maybe maybe in the next 10, 20 years we could see that. Um, or maybe five, ten. I, I don't know, but I, I think that sounds that sounds like a like a possibility. There is, I don't know. There's a lot of like polls I read and things I hear from people. Me myself, you know, a lot of people want to start a business. One thing that I've always been curious about is what are some steps you could take if you're a person that wants to start a business to kind of avoid some of the typical traps or pitfalls or mistakes that people make in starting a business. Um, kind of from a high level kind of viewpoint. Um, or I guess we've gotten into like the psychological viewpoint, but you know, what are some things people can do to kind of prevent, you know, having a business fail, a small business fail? It's a very good question. And I don't have a very clear answer to this, but uh, I will share a few intuitions. First, make sure you sell the business venture within your household. Have your um, wife or partner or whoever you live with buy the idea 
that, that this is worthwhile pursuing. So you have less pressures if things take a little bit longer than what you think they'll take. Second, try to cut down your own personal expenses to the bare minimum so you can survive longer in business before the, the business takes off. Third, uh, cash is king, so finding ways to have access to capital before you need could be a very smart way to deal with the period of a smaller income and the investments required to get the business off the ground. So when, when you still have some good credit, try to establish some good credit lines, talk to some banks, credit unions, in order to secure that before you are uh, jumping into business. Maybe when you're still employed and you have a regular source of income, maybe when you have a good uh, credit history to show. So if you have that established beforehand, you have a cushion that can get you through the process. And uh, one also relevant uh, task is that once the business is set up, the, the, the basic foundation for the business is set up, and you have a few clients, and you have a few customers, and you have uh, some proof of concept, mm -hmm. it's very important to do the setup and the proof of concept on your own, by yourself. But once the proof of concept and you... Well, why, why is it so important to do it by yourself? Because, because that's, it's very important to have the credibility that you have something viable that the, 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 right. the market pays for. Okay, yeah. If you, if you just have an idea that you think it's good, but you, you're not really sure that anybody is, able, is willing to pay for, right. it can be a problem. But my, my, my reasoning is this. Yeah. this. You, you, you're able to bootstrap and, and have a prototype and have an initial proof of concept that somebody is willing to pay for. Then you hit the market for like investors and see how they evaluate your business and see if you can raise money under reasonable terms. If you're able to raise, raise money from others under reasonable terms, and if you have proof of concept that customers are, are buying what you have to offer, then you're in a good track. Now, if you don't have people buying your product, and if you have a tough time in convincing investors to invest, mm -hmm. you may not have that good of a business, even though you, you may feel like you do. And if that's the case, I would advise to pull the plug and try to do something else with, with, you know, with your life because insisting <laughs> can be uh, devastating for your financial uh, situation and it can be very bad also for your family and your relationships and, and all this. Uh, of course, you want to be in business to succeed and uh, you can get very good data points from the market and from the market of consumers and from the market of investors, whether or not your idea and your capability to execute the idea is sound. If you don't get these data points at, at after the business has been set up and established and you created the foundation, right. there's no point in insisting. And having the, the maturity and the wisdom to pull the plug and not insisting in something that is very unlikely to succeed uh, I think it's, 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 a, it's a good course of action. Now, if you do get positive data points and if you have investors willing to uh, back you, and if you have customers and you see customers willing to adopt what you have to offer, stop everything you're doing and just uh, dedicate all your attention 
all your energy to that project. You know, just focus for a couple of years, just don't do anything else. Don't balance your life, like uh, my opinion again, not life and, uh, and work balance. No, focus entirely in the business. <laughs> Get it off the ground, and then you balance your life later. <laughs> you know, during those years of startup, just focus everything you can because you're going. You have concrete indication that the market likes what you have to offer, the products or service you have, and you have indication from people, the sources of capital that what you have is is sound. So, uh, just go for it. That's that's my piece of advice for people that want to become entrepreneurs and want to go for business by themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point, having the customers um, out. Uh, one of the, the people that I'm familiar with, um, do you know the language school franchise? It's called Wizard? Yes. You heard of that? Yes, I know. It's big. They're big in Brazil. They're huge. Yeah, so I, I worked with the guy, the owner, Carlos Martins, when I lived in Brazil. Um, he was kind of like our manager or whatever wow. over there. Um, yeah, he's actually a fairly humble, kind of normal kind of guy. But yeah, he's built this whole like language school, and um, he's just very driven. And uh, But he started it because he had a job, like a corporate kind of job, for a few years. Um, but he started teaching his coworkers um, English after work for like, and it was just for extra money, you know. I think on a weekly basis, he'd have uh -huh. a class or two. And he started making a little more money than he was because these classes got bigger and bigger. He started making more money doing that than he was making at his regular job. And so then it kind of hit him as like, well, you know, maybe I should start doing this. And I think, you know, you, you gotta have the customers for it. He that, had the customers. That shows so, shows you know. that he had the proof of concept. He right. was able to come up with a method. He was able to come up with uh, a following of people buying his service. And I know Wizards, they're all over the country. They, are, they were able to grow into a large organization and became extremely successful. Uh, and. Uh, he did it right. He, he, he got the proof of concept even before having a real business set up. Right. Well, and, and also the, the buy-in from his family, like his wife, so organized and so much a big part of that forming that company as well. So, I mean, and she was completely in from the beginning. She was teaching as well and going to the banks. And having the buy-in from the family, uh, I think it's, it's very, very useful. It's very good because you don't have to battle and sort of prove yourself at home that what you're doing is is something that is uh, good for the family and it's it has a potential and it's something that everybody can benefit from right. so i would say that uh, it's critical if you have a, a, if you're surrounded at home with a bunch of uh, naysayers <laughs> and you have to battle them and it, it, it's extra difficult to keep going and keep the energy up and you know dealing with the inevitable uh, roadblocks and, and hurdles that hit any entrepreneurial project. Yeah. Well, this is interesting, Mars, too. Um, I've had a great time talking with you. Um, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hopefully this helps the listeners. Wonderful. Thank you for having me, Mark. Thank, thank you. you.